What's up, Bucky fans? We are at Hill 4. That's right, it is season four of Shoot the Shit, and we are back with some more of the best stories in the world of Buggy to show you what makes a sport special, which is you, the characters and the teams that build up the wonderful legacy and lore of the sport of Buggy. So go ahead and strap on your safety harnesses, get in, because it's time for some more great Buggy stories here on Shoot the Shit. Welcome back to another episode of Shoot the Shit. Been having a lot of fun this season, hope you all have too. And looky here, we are just over a week away from race day. This year has been flying. I am so excited to finally see buggies speeding down the course full speed. And you know, with race day, one of the most important elements of that day, perhaps the most important element is safety. And that is the theme of this week's episode. Less narrative and kind of more a round table. We have some historic safety chairs, um, as well as Rachel Schmidt, who, beyond producing this podcast, actually did for part of her uh, senior thesis, uh, crash test studies on buggies to really understand the ramifications of what exactly happens to a buggy, to a person when they crash. And we get into a lot of really cool topics about the philosophy of safety, uh, kind of, you know, the challenges of being a safety chair, uh, where the sport is going with safety, where it's come from, some of those conflicts between perhaps safety, innovation, so on and so forth. Really cool, um, you know, thought-provoking discussion, uh, I think should be very entertaining to anyone who's a fan of the sport. So yeah, you can dance you can, if you want to, you can listen if you want to, um, but it's time to shoot the shit. Talk about safety. I'm Rachel Schmidt. I'm usually on the other side of this podcast. I do the behind the scenes work of figuring out what episodes to do and which guests to have on and everything. Buggy wise, I was in both CIA and Apex and graduated in 2015. I was build lead for Icarus for CIA and then I got the chance to drive as well for Apex my senior year. I can go next. Uh, my name is Lena Griffin. Um, I was head mechanic for Fringe in 2014 and 2016 uh, and safety chair, well, 2014 to 2016, safety chair from 2016 to 2017, and I was head judge in 2018. I'm Fritz Langford. I was the uh, safety chair in on race day 2011. I was also the executive director of CMU EMS that year. And uh, before that, I was with SIGEP and was the uh, the chairman uh, of SIGEP on race day 2010. My name's Tom Wood. I began Buggy in 1969 with Pi Kappa Alpha. I was the second and third safety chairman for the university. I later helped write the uh, rules that uh, existed from 1986 to the present day. Thank you. And, and, you know, I will say to past episodes where we talked Tom and season one, uh, if you want some more background, we get into that a fair bit. Same thing. The um, episode where uh, I interview student activities, talk with like uh, Ann Wichner, um, Casey Palco and so on. If you're interested in doing some further research into this, would recommend checking those out. Um, but Let's kind of go get into this right now. So we're talking about safety. We're going to go over kind of a lot of things within that. But I, I am just kind of curious to hear everybody's experience briefly just with the role. Like, what's it like being a safety chair? Because I think it's one of those positions that's kind of 
don't know, for lack of a better word, like notorious within the buggy world. Uh, but what's it like, like having that responsibility? What do you see as like the main responsibilities and, and duties that tie to it? Sure. So the most important role is to, uh, is right in the name as the safety chair is to uh, enforce the safety rules and make buggy a safe experience for all of the participants uh, and, and non-participants, although that is typically less of an issue. At least when um, I was on the course uh, in my time during 2016 to 2017, um, my role was not only to keep drivers, pushers, and mechanics safe, as well as the audience, like Fritz said, um, but to also help educate and encourage teams to try and improve their own safety systems as well. So there is a balance between checking what's already there and encouragement to make sure that it can be even better. Well, because of the tragic accident that occurred in 1971, safety became preeminent in the world of buggy. So for example, Dean Swank, who was overseeing buggy at the time, he essentially came to a sweepstakes meeting and he read the riot act to us and said, you will change and you will make these you know, decisions and they will become part of your global system. So when I was safety inspector, I was out there every night every free roll. We only had free rolls on Sunday at the time, but for every push practice, I was out there and I inspected every buggy, every driver, every night. So that means they had to have their gloves, their glasses, their mouthpiece, harness, everything had to check their brakes every night. And if there was any discussion about the situation, the people were sent home. So within that role, right, I think the, the basic responsibilities are clear, right? Keep it safe. Um, obviously, it's always an interesting relationship with the rest of sweepstakes. Do you feel like there are any kind of, I guess, misconceptions out there or misunderstandings kind of of the buggy world of what the safety chair is, what they're trying to do, uh, what they can or cannot do? I think a at least in during my generation, there were definitely some concerns. We had a few safety chairs who were younger than seniors, um, and there were concerns that people were becoming the safety chair just to improve their their own team's buggies. And I don't think that's necessarily true, um, first and foremost, because one, you can have the best mechanic, like best mechanics in the business, and you can have the uh, best possible interpretation of what you saw, but you're never going to get an apples to apples comparison. And so whenever somebody says, well, that team's putting up a sophomore just so that they can look inside those buggies and build a new one that looks as great as possible. Um, I don't think that's, that's necessarily true. It's going to be really hard to repeat another team's, uh, to replicate another team's buggies without their build books. Um, so if there's any myth I could dispel, that would be one of them. Yeah, I would agree. It's uh, I I don't think we had uh any that issue while while I was uh at Carnegie Mellon, but I would agree that there is the safety chair has has both more insight into the organizations than you would think, but less insight into the technology than you would think as well. Um, that if you look at um, what the safety chair does, it's pretty well spelled out in the rule books. 
um, and every mechanic or at least members of every organization have interacted with the safety chair. So they're familiar with safeties, safety inspection, capes, uh, spot safeties, uh, that kind of thing, all of the, the, the interactions you have with the safety chair. And, um, you know, to the extent that they enforce the rules, they enforce the rules pretty much as written, which detail things like harnesses and mouth guards. Um, but, you know, different organizations have different ideas on what their secret sauce is. Many of them, uh, it revolves around w wheels or wheel technology. Um, mm -hmm. Those aren't really, that's not really something that the safety chair has a lot of special insight into. Um, and so I think there is, and there are other things like that as well. You know, if you look at, if you think your, your um, uh, aerodynamics or your shell shape or something or some something that you put on it uh, makes it faster, that, you know, is maybe tangentially going to come up in one of the, uh, the inspections, but is unlikely to really come up in a, in a way that the safety chair could glean any sort of, um, certainly any competitive advantage. Uh, and so I, I think this, the safety, broadly speaking, the safety chair has less insight into your technology than you might think. I can tell you categorically, pardon me for interrupting the race. Uh, one of the things that uh, I was asked because of my involvement with PICAP Alpha was there was a lot of treating of wheels going on in, in my era, all right, to the point where we actually had an organization that we found had a 55-gallon drum of solvent out on the course. And so we actually called in each organization, and although I was only safety, with the sweepstakes chairman, we asked each organization, what are you treating? What are you treating with? All right, because we wanted to make sure that we had the proper safeguards and we weren't covering that by the rules like they are today, where they say, you know, you're not allowed any solvent on hand, you know, at the, at the bottom of the hill. Back then, people were, I mean, literally, you had a chance to have some major explosions occur down there. And I know it's hard to believe, but, uh, you know, Dean Swank insisted, and he was present when we asked those people. And did they lie to us? Of course they did. But um, that's part of the, the issue that you've got is the transparency during the safety inspections. You know, people have got to be honest with you. You know, how are you doing this? How are you making it happen? Because it's not about, as Linda so aptly pointed out, you're not trying to glean information. You're just trying to make sure that everything is being done to a comparable level to ensure the safety of not only the drivers, but as what we what happened in the 80s when we got rid of the bicycles was because of the inherent safety problems with those vehicles themselves. Yeah, that that's a great point, Tom. And I, in my experience, it was, I had fewer issues with people lying to me, as far as I know, <laughs> but I did have issues with people who didn't know. So I, one of the things that I, I asked a lot of questions about was um, construction of the, of the vehicles um, the, and basically how the, how the composite layups were done. Um, and uh, I sort of probed into each organization around uh, the quality of those builds. Um, 
And for new builds, the people who built it were generally in the room and could answer the question. Some of them were more willing than others. But for buggies that had been on the course for many years, um, it was it was sort of surprising how little in- information the teams that were racing knew about these buggies other than, oh, they've, we've been racing them for 10 years. Okay. <laughs> um and uh, and by the way, the ten safety chairs before you all signed off on it, so uh, you're going to sign off on this too, right? And I'm like, well, y- you haven't answered any of the questions other than I don't know, but yeah, I guess the the last ten guys all signed off. There's a huge amount of pressure in a situation like that to um, to approve it, um, and you need a pretty good reason if you're not going to a, a pass a buggy that has previously passed for. Um, uh, safeties or capes, uh, setting aside something like if the buggy was in an accident or there's been some major alteration or something, um, then you you have a, a duty to dig into that. But if it's just because the, the previous safety chairs didn't ask or didn't care about the same things that you're asking about, um, it, it can be tough to uh, to really dig in and figure out like, okay, does this meet the intent of the rules? And um, should I, should I pass this buggy from from a safety or capes perspective? That's a really awesome point, Fritz. Because during at least when I was safety chair, there was definitely circumstances where I was like, how would how did this buggy pass, for example, the sit test um, years prior? Um, and so I I would notice these things initially during capes and invest like when you go down and do your full check about the safety systems, the shell construction um, for each buggy, which you do once a semester, a safety chair. Um, And I would start, one thing that I started implementing, and we can get into this more later, but was uh, checking the shell. And there was one specific buggy that I will not name that I pressed on the shell to check for DLAMs. And the full thing just sort of caved in and I went, oh, no. Um, so during the sit test, they were like, all right, we're going to get our driver to sit on it. And I said, no, 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 no. And I pointed to the heaviest mechanic they had in the room, this linebacker looking fellow. And I was like, <laughs> he's going to sit on it. And it did not pass capes that year, uh, at least the first time. And I told them, go back, add a, a new framework to this. It should work come back and try and recaping it. I don't want to penalize you from racing this buggy on race day, but it needs to make sure, like I need to make sure that this can pass a sit test to protect the driver. You understand. Yeah. And, and that, that story illustrates maybe how things change over time. Um, when I was uh, the safety chair and the years that I was a mechanic, um, the sit test was performed by the safety chair and so li- literally the safety chair sat on the buggy and sort of looked at it. And, and, uh, uh, and so the, the weight of the person who had been elected to the safety chair position was the, the key factor. Um, and interestingly, the sit test is not defined in the rules. Uh, what is defined in the rules is a 400 pound steel plate that gets lowered onto the buggy. Right. Um, that uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't weigh 400 pounds. I weighed about 170 when I was the, the safety chair. Um, but certainly we didn't have two people and much less, cl- you know, close to three people sitting on a buggy um, to say nothing of the fact that humans are kind of squishy and the weight gets distributed around a bit. Uh, steel plates are, are less 
um, flexible and uh, w- w- would be a, a significantly different load on the on the shell of the buggy. Um, but the sit test is, is, at least in modern history, has been the way that that test is implemented. Um, and uh, that that's how it's been done. I, I would be interested, Tom, to know if if there if that was originally how it was done when the rule was written, or if at any point there has been a a different method of implementing that um, that so load. The, the, that rule actually went into effect like after the 1986 races, so that would have been 1987 going forward. But. When I was the safety inspector, there was no sit test. But most of those buggies probably would have passed. If you've seen the Tiger Shark 2, you can see that buggy weighed 80 pounds and probably had like five layers of glass. And it was, you know, so even today, it would pass uh, the safety tests uh, performed by the chairman. But that's a very good point. We, we were very conflicted as to how to conduct that test. But what we wanted to imply was the fact that it had to be of substantial enough quality that it could take an impact and withstand a load. And I think originally we wrote it was 500 pounds, but whatever. That's the that was our reasoning for that. And then, of course, the horizontal bar was about the. Uh, that came after that wreck in 79 where uh, CIA got run into by Pika's B-buggy and we almost hit the driver's nose with the front of our buggy because we're running a Lexan windshield and we just smashed through the front of their buggy. And I have a good video of, of that that uh, shows that wreck. It was absolutely mind-boggling. And I saw all that because I was in the lead car as a head judge that year. One one thing I'm kind of curious about as we're getting into this um, that kind of came up a little bit ago where you're talking about, right, you're not trying to steal tech, and that all makes sense. But I guess what motivation is there to be the safety chair in the sense that, like, it feels kind of like a referee or like an umpire, right, where it's like, not necessarily the most fun job. It's probably a job where there's a lot of uh, scrutiny towards everything you do. Um, but yet it's one of the most crucial and important ones. So kind of what, I guess, drew you all, or if there are characteristics you think that kind of are representative of, of safety chairs? Well, I, for me, professional interest. Uh, I was also the executive director of CMU EMS at the time. I had sort of an interest and still have an interest in in safety particularly the intersection of safety and engineering. I would say, uh, and I can't speak to what other safety chairs found motivational, but certainly the ability to see inside other buggies in an, in a, a sport that is uh, that can be quite secretive at times, um, I suspect is motivating to, to many people. But I, I also suspect that the, uh, the opportunity to give back and to be a leader in the sweepstakes organization um, for people who really love buggy and and there are many of us who do uh, is a, a reward unto itself 
I became the safety chair, my own reasons were uh, a crushing sense of responsibility <laughs> to help <laughs> improve the sport. Um, and the other one was, I just saw opportunities to improve certain safety structures um, and systems that either were or were not in place or should have been. Um, so, and I can get into this later, but uh, giving revamping driver training um, and the driver safety lecture at the beginning of each semester was one of my, my big goals. Um, and outside of that, uh, outside of just the responsibility and the, if not me, who uh, question, because I ran unopposed uh, in late 2016, um, for, for the position. Uh, the other thing was I had built four different fringe buggies at that time. One with, I did help build a X1. So one of which had nine wheels. Um, so I was like, all right, I've seen all that fringes, <laughs> I've, I've, I've run the, the gauntlet of fringe buggies. Let's see what other teams are doing. And if I can provide help, maybe I could. So mine was uh, done politically because if you haven't gotten the feel for me over the years, I'm pretty outspoken about various things and I can rub people the wrong way at times. So let's say that um, my voice was not well accepted within the framework of my own fraternity. So they were happy to nominate me as the sweepstakes chairman, you know, safety chairman, and um, everybody knew me on campus, and they were happy to have me there, and they knew I would enforce the rules, and that's what it's all about. And it's getting back to the previous comments by uh, Fritz and Lena, you know, essentially you're operating as an auditor, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to audit this system or this process that's going on. It's a fabulous tradition called buggy. And you're trying to make it safer and you're trying to prolong the longevity of this wonderful sport. And the only way you can do that is to make it safe. Because if there's one wrong move, the university, you know, being risk adverse might pull the plug on this wonderful sport. Change gears a little bit, but I think it'll spur some interesting stuff. So, uh, Rachel, right, a big reason you're on this is you did a bunch of research and a whole project looking at essentially buggy crash tests and um effects from that so i'd love to hear a bit more kind of about what that project was like uh what you found and learned from it um and you know how that might apply kind of to just safety within buggy as a whole yeah definitely so i did buggy crash testing in 2015 as my senior thesis project and I reread my report today and went through a bunch of fun memories and I wrote out some notes to make sure I remember all the pieces of it. Um, so the context was at that time, there had been an increasing amount of crashes uh, in frequency and severity on the course, um, which really reignited a lot of community discussion. And there were two crashes in a row that that required an ambulance and were fairly severe in injury in a way that Buggy hadn't seen in, I think, many years before that. And this included a head-first curb crash into a curb at 
racing speed or at least close to racing speed. And um, when people were analyzing these crashes and trying to figure out how to prevent them in the future, um, there was a lot of kind of debate and conflicting information on what had potentially happened um, during the actual crashes. So the kind of core concept I was going for was we want to learn from crashes. Why don't we crash on purpose without a human being in the buggy needing to get hurt? And we can, you know, know where it's crashing and videotape it and put sensors on the buggy and get as much, examine the buggy afterwards and get as much information as we can from this. So the first thing I did was look at all of the EMS records that were available on buggy incidents. And it actually wasn't that many because it was constricted by how far the EMS system went and they had changed over in 2012. So I had uh, six semesters of data of incidents, which was 32 incidents with two hospital visits. And there's more information on that and the incident rate per semester and stuff in the report. Um, But then the second piece was I prepared the buggies for crashing and I wanted to make sure that they were both capable and represented real buggies on the course. So I had a new buggy that was brand new. It had actually been built like too small for any human driver. And so it had never rolled. And then there was an old buggy called Bethany who had been on multiple teams and had a long and storied history and needed some repairs. So repaired Bethany, um, which included a nose repair, which comes up later. And because of that, we got to compare brand new construction to an old shale repair and see how they react differently in the same scenario. So I thought that was really useful information. At the time, at least in the circles I was in, there was a lot of debate about whether it was safe to repair a buggy or if the kind of integrity of the main carbon fiber strength wouldn't work and adding more carbon fiber to repair a buggy um, just wouldn't wouldn't be strong enough to be safe to roll. I got this company in Ohio to loan me a real crash test dummy, which was awesome. They I sent them a video of Buggy and they watched it and thought it was cool and let me just borrow one of their like actual professional crash test dummies. Except one of the things about that is the anatomy of a crash test dummy is not, you know, the exact same as a person. And the way that a driver rotates their arms uh their shoulders to fit inside a buggy wasn't possible with the dummy and so the dummy actually wouldn't fit um width wise in the buggy and had to remove both of her arms so she was a double amputation crash test dummy driver and obviously the intent with the dummy was to be able to measure the impacts with the million sensors that dummies have and Justin Dauber was kind enough to help me hook up all of those sensors to a solid-state hard drive that we put in the buggy, but unfortunately something went wrong with that and we weren't able to actually record the data, the data that we had hoped to. It's like whenever you do something new, one thing doesn't work, and that was the one thing that didn't work, but we still got a lot of great information otherwise. Okay, so obviously this is not... Crashing two buggies in this format is not necessarily statistically significant or a perfect test or a flawless simulation. Um, but essentially, I was just trying to add some information, more data, without a human having to crash. And so there's four kind of main takeaways that I have from this. The first is that 
the hay bales work, which is not breaking news, but it's nice to see firsthand how well they cushion and impact. Uh, they are fantastic and really do their job well. The next is how the old buggy that was repaired compared to the completely new construction buggy. And it was essentially the same, at least in terms of crumple zone. The repaired buggy actually had a little less crumple zone, um, four inches, so a little more strength in the nose, and then the new buggy had four and a half inches of crumple zone. By which I mean the amount of nose that disappeared um, after uh, ramming it into the curb. And that takes some impact and some force, and there was no notable difference. And I think that's also similar to what was seen in the other headfirst crash with a driver inside. And I don't remember if they said it on the podcast, but Apex later took that information to design their buggies such that the driver's hands would be behind that uh, portion that they would expect to be smashed into the curb in the case of um, this kind of crash. And then the biggest takeaway was something that I hadn't even been trying to test, which was that um, the dummy was harnessed in properly and everything with a real buggy harness and webbing and all that um, on a buggy that had passed capes and was within the rules. And on impact, uh, it just fully shot full speed out of the buggy. You can actually hear me screaming on the video when that happened. The failure point was the attachment method to the buggy, which Mm -hmm. makes sense when you think about it because uh, I think that's the trickiest thing. Everything else you can buy off the shelf. You can buy a harness that's rated and tested professionally for uh, rock climbing or whatever. You have the helmets, you have the webbing that's rated to a certain standard, but the one thing that's really not is those um, harness attachment points for how you're actually connecting that system to the buggy. And if those aren't strong enough, then you can have the, the best harness in the world and it won't really do, do you any good. And this buggy was within the rules. It had been checked by two safety chairs that cape buggies. And, and a similar thing happened in the fringe crash. And I think that year's fringe team... Um, did a really wonderful thing in setting this incredible standard for being transparent and explaining to the community exactly what happened to help other teams avoid the same mistake. And I think probably other teams uh, would have had a similar thing happen if they had been um, the unfortunate ones to uh, crash headfirst at speed. And it also kind of goes back to Fritz's point about how the people who were... um, explaining the buggy or examining the buggy don't necessarily know the details that went into construction because essentially what happened with the attachment points is that when we looked at them it it looked like it was something other than what it was and we wouldn't have really known without talking without either like cutting it open or talking to um an original um builder of that buggy And so I would advocate for a more scrutinized capes check of the harness points and the actual construction of what went into them, or even some sort of standardized um, standardization for how hard points are attached and how much they need to be bolted 
bolted through like all the layers of carbon fiber and the amount of surface area that the plates or whatever they are need to have and also given the danger of ejection maybe the two two of the three required harness points should have to be in the back but i know at least um four teams do their harness attachments very very differently and i imagine others do as well and then the last thing from the testing that i think is important to consider is related to that which is that um it really cooled me on forward trike buggies that have a big wheel structure in front of the driver's face because of this possibility for ejection um even a partial ejection is um the driver going headfirst into that piece of metal and i think we've been lucky that actual ejections have been reverse trike or um from what i hear because i'm not i was in a safety chair and i haven't seen the side buggies but from what i hear very minimal structure in the front but i think that any buggy that does have a big metal piece in front of the driver's head um, in terms of the wheel or anything else is um, kind of a disaster waiting to happen if they have that kind of front impact and the harness points fail and we have seen them fail. I think the argument that this isn't a concern is that the drivers would lower their head and the helmet would take the impact uh, against that metal structure, which would be ideal but it's also ideal to not hit a curb at full speed without braking. So my personal opinion is that ejection consideration should be part of buggy designs and large metal structures in the way of ejection are dangerous and would make a worst case crash um, even worse. So that's all that. To end on a fun note, I may or may not have broken the crash test dummy. It allegedly didn't work anymore when I got back to the factory, and we were also unable to recover any of the data from the sensors. So it was either defective at the beginning, or it got damaged in shipping, or a Carnegie Mellon buggy crash was too much for this crash test dummy. And opening this back up to the group. I was wondering if you had any data on the actual speed at which the buggy was traveling at the time of impact. 35 miles an hour. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, I kind of skipped over this in the interest of time, but the main purpose of doing the EMS incident analysis was to figure out what what specific scenario I wanted to crash test in order to get the most useful information, because obviously you can really only crash test a buggy once uh, because it's ruined after that. The other question that I would have for you, Rachel, is when you were talking about repairing the buggy, was it a carbon fiber layup to begin with? Yes, it was a carbon fiber monocoque. I could be wrong, but I think that's what all the buggies on the course are right now. And the it had worn down to the foam, so I added just some localized carbon fiber on top of those problem areas. So were you able to find out what was the pressure in pounds exerted upon the harness when it failed? Unfortunately not. The data we got back from the sensors was just noise. So that part didn't work. I think it would be amazing if someone redoes that with it 
figuring out what went wrong and hooks it up correctly. But from the video, you really don't see any difference in momentum from the buggy hitting the curb and the dummy ejecting outwards. So I think it was pretty instantaneous. Those harness points just ripped right out. And that was really shocking and eye-opening to me, especially because mechanics from three different teams helped me with this and no one raised a red flag about the attachment points and this was actually after the banyan crash so we all should have really known better um but it still happened it still failed we still didn't notice and i think there's a real lesson in that now that we know this is such a ripe potential of a failure point uh I think it would make sense for teams to really look a lot harder at what their attachment points are and how they're doing them and how they would hold up to that kind of um, that kind of an impact. Well, the good news is about that is there's actually been uh, thanks once again to the endowment fund. I cannot stress enough just how cool the endowment fund is for for testing out new safety regulations. Um, uh, Wade Gordon, I believe a SDC alum, was able to get a pulley system to actually test out uh, harness point um, harness points up to 400 pounds or something like that, uh, or even more, in order to make sure that harness points would hold um, within the monocoque. Uh, so I think that's incredible. I think the next step would probably be making sure that we can design and develop a, a safe harness for, for all drivers that can meet the same standard. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great example of, of the community and the, and the funding and the willpower all coming together with the experience um, to improve the testing on on the buggies um that i think one of the themes here has probably been the you know the load cases that we do during safeties and capes are not super representative of the loads experienced on the buggy during a crash one of the the things that this crash testing showed is what those loads during a crash really are and um allow us to go back and work on the on the uh on the loads that we impose during the qualification test to ensure that they're going to pass uh a buggy that has passed safeties and capes is is safe to to race in so i I think that's great and i'm really happy that uh that that sweepstakes is doing that and i hope we continue that trend and do that in other areas for the next few decades i definitely agree um lena i think you had something else about the crash testing it's actually interesting that you bring up the 2014 crash i'm sure as you know i was also a student at that time in fringe during that incident um and it was fringe c team running banyan um and I remember that crash distinctly because we brought the buggy back after the crash and put it in in the truck. And you are right, five to six inches of the nose um, came clear off. 
it just pulverized. And so when, when these incidents happen, um, having people like you, Rachel, to go in and say, all right, let's see if we can replicate this in a meaningful way um, and whether or not we can learn from this, it's, it's important. And, but one of the biggest concerns I have regarding buggy as a sport is just maintaining that knowledge um, because we learned that harness systems need to improve. We learned from both that incident and from Rachel that harness systems need to improve. And um, I think just this past year, um, there was another there was another unfortunate ejection on the course, and uh, all of the drivers, a lot of teams voluntarily turned in their old harnesses, and we were lucky enough. Buggy has now the endowment fund to improve the sport of buggy, uh, where we were able to rewrite, uh, not necessarily rewrite, but replace all of these old uh, harnesses with more standardized climbing harnesses. Um, one thing that I would love to see in the future of buggy is just an overall improvement and standardization of harness structures, because that's one thing that I think might need to be standardized in the future just to prevent incidents like this. I think that's an excellent point. That's one of the things that we struggled with back in the 80s was that we did not have a ready supply of folks who were willing to take that on and, you know, say, all right, we're going to accept the liability for a, a race like this and, you know, a crash design for a uh, gravity-powered vehicle. And that's where we struggled because we looked high and low back at the time. And I think that's where you bring apart a new technology that, uh, you know, can offer an awful lot for this uh, sport. And quite honestly, and you can cut this out, but I really think that what you're saying here amongst the three of you plus Will, you really ought to bring this to the forefront, not only to the administration for CMU, but also for the general buggy public at Spring Carnival, because I find your descriptions extremely fascinating and uh, very contributive to the, the sport of buggy, honestly. And uh, I'm glad you asked me to sit in on this. I think, I think that's probably why as safety chairman, we're fascinated with this position um, and Rachel being a person who is invested in safety, both as a previous driver, a previous mechanic, and um, as somebody who has done extensive crash tests, um, we're kind of nutty about safety because we want to see this sport succeed and we want to see it continue to go. We don't want anybody within the university um, or otherwise to find an excuse to shut us down. And so that's one of the reasons why there's, uh, <laughs> people like us who, who get a bit obsessed with the details. Uh, no, I, I, one thing I think that is interesting from that is, right, you talked about this thing of maybe having standardized harness or uh, the uh, potential use of research and stuff like this. Like how much we know kind of within buggy teams, there's various <laughs> record keeping and knowledge passed down, but how does that work within the world of the safety chair beyond the rules? Is there kind of this like corpus of 
lessons learned and best practices or is it really kind of word of mouth as as a lot of this is it totally depends on the person who had the job before you and and whether they kept records uh kept kept the notes from the person before them most people only hold the job for one year so there's a lot of turnover and um and unfortunately they're often graduating seniors uh so they're graduating seniors after race day there's two weeks to finals uh you know the election happens <laughs> like right before after race day before finals um yeah transitions are tough speaking from my experience um the only thing that the previous safety chair before me told me as a word of advice was don't be a dick and that was it <laughs> and um so i was like that that might not have been as helpful as you think it was man and so <laughs> um what i what i did starting uh my year is i went out and i I purchased a hot pink folder um, and I started, I put each tab had a different team's name on it. And so all of their accident reports and all of their Kate's reports would go into that hot pink folder. Um, at least last year I checked in with the current safety chairman. I was like, do you still have that? And they're like, Oh, you, you made that. And I was like, so apparently there is now a record, just a very packed, binder filled with capes and accidents report accident reports that at this point should really be digitized but um i think for secrecy reasons um some some safety chairman might be afraid to do that <laughs> it's good there's like some level of record keeping and whatnot but are, are there certain things you would wish you had had or kind of in retrospect like what would have helped with some of that record keeping or is it you know, any ideas for improvements that way, just because it is a weird community in sport, right? Where there is so much institutional knowledge, but not a lot of it's centralized. Um, and, and you can be doomed to repeat the past or whatever with that. What would have been most useful to me is, is better record keeping inside the organizations. Uh, because the safety chair if you have the previous safety chairman's notes or the past 10 or 20 safety chairman's notes, you are dependent one on, uh, on figuring out what, what the notes are about. Um, but also that they ask the right questions and, uh, it's a little bit of a game of telephone, right? That the, the source of the information is the team, the safety chairman 10 years ago asked something or investigated an accident or whatever, um, and, uh, and now you are reviewing those records at some point in the future for some things that's very helpful for, I would say like factual things about what happened in an incident. That would be, that would be very helpful. Um, the, I, I, I'll, you know, the records of the photo galleries on cmubuggy.org did not exist or were in their infancy when I was, uh, the safety chair. I suspect that those Rolls reports and photos are, uh, are are quite useful to today's students and and today's safety chairs. I I, I really do agree with you, Fritz. I think having that institutional knowledge is like incredibly essential because one, 
you'll be able to figure out as a team, like not just a sa- from a safety chair's perspective, but from a mechanic's perspective, if you're coming into a team that's been running the same buggy for 10 years um, and you don't have a build book for that buggy and you don't have records of like, these are the common parts that need to be replaced. Here's something you need to sp- pay special attention to. Here's how you align the wheels of your buggy, which some teams don't need to do and some teams really need to do. Um, having that information is crucial, not just from a safety perspective, but just from running your team and making your buggy fast. Um, so um, if you aren't keeping a build book, even if you aren't building, but if you aren't keeping a build slash maintenance book, you should. It's important. Yeah, I I agree. And even back to you know things like we were talking about harness attachment points. How is the harness attached on this buggy? You you see a uh, you see a spot of structure that looks pretty firm, and there's a bolt that runs through it. Is it reinforced, or did someone uh, just is that a single layer of carbon fiber over Nomex core with no reinforcement around it and there's and it's gonna tear out does anyone know does anyone know the answer to that question (laughs) you probably can't tell from looking at it um how about that windshield which the rules say has to be attached I think it says like it has to be attached in a manner acceptable to the safety chairman uh what is the windshield made out of the rules specify a thickness and a material um I suppose you you could take calipers and measure, although when it's installed, I suspect that would be difficult to do in practice. I don't know how you would verify the material. Um, you can check and... the material. I actually had an organization lie to me at, and tell me that they were using uh, Lexan, and it turned out to be acrylic, and it fractured during free roll. I have a feeling that might be more frequent than we would like. Um I don't have any evidence of that. And I suspect that there are teams who don't know. Well, I, I bet you're right. It's tough to tell just by looking. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. So, you know, if, if it was built many years ago, um, if those records aren't present, the, the irony, of course, is that the type of team that keeps those records uh, year after year is probably the type of team that checks to ensure that it was really Lexan and it was the appropriate thickness. The problem comes when it's a, a buggy that the build book has been either lost or stolen. And to mem- reference a previous podcast uh, episode, which was about build books, Brazen is a buggy that is running this year, and it was built nearly 23 years ago. Um, we don't know where the build book for that buggy is because it's been supposedly absconded with, um, to the best of my knowledge. And so those teams, despite the fact that that buggy is built like a brick house, have to figure that out without a build book, the, the team that's now using that's now using Brazen. I quick, quick um, meander past this topic. Tom, is it true that you threatened to hit um, some windshields with a baseball bat when you sure. were on the course? We did. <laughs> we actually had driver training. And I took a ball peen hammer and hit it on our, our buggy to demonstrate to the drivers this is what should be able to happen. If you have a properly treated Lexan windscreen, it will not fail. 
Lou Conley and I demonstrated that to the drivers. We used to show up and have a driver's meeting and demonstrate to them, look, you should be able to feel safe putting your face in front of these things because this is how strong they are. I will say when I was a safety chair, I did use that, that, uh, I use that as a threat whenever people would be like, no, we can't give you a sample of this material. And I'm like, do you want me to smash this with a hammer? <laughs> it wouldn't even take that much effort. Honestly, if it was an acrylic, you should be able to smash it with the end of a screwdriver. Just give it a good whack. Yeah, so I, I think kind of continuing on forward looking as we're sort of talking about different recommendations and stuff like what do you all see as some of the biggest safety issues facing buggy right now or changes or things to implement to kind of make it better, safer for the future? Is there anything that kind of jumps out at you? I'd say the biggest concern is about safety right now in buggy is maintaining the rule book and loss of knowledge uh, due to COVID. There's a lot of institutional knowledge that unfortunately got lost during uh, the COVID years, as we'll call them. Um, and you see that on the course with certain teams. Um, uh, another thing that I would say is a huge concern is year over year, we see teams and chairmen vote on rules to improve the rule book, um, say at the end of last semester, at the end of fall semester, or then in spring semester. And then somebody forgets to actually update the, the real doc and then push that to the site. Um, and so we have all these old versions of the rule book going around um, that say contradictory things. Um, I believe as of right now, the rule book on cmubucky.org is the most recent one. And we have some of the recent safety chairmans and past members of sweeps to thank for that. So I have a number of issues. One is fastening devices, constructional components that people make themselves out of carbon fiber, like axles. I have a perfect example right here, which is a wheel with a ceramic bearing in. I can't tell you how many times I've been at the corner during free roll and I've literally had a wheel come off the end of a spindle because the ceramic bearing blew up going around the turn and I have to, one, jump away from the vehicle, the buggy, and then everybody's scrambling to get the wheel and they're not concerned about the driver at all, right? So you put the driver in an unsafe uh, condition because you use these blasted ceramic bearings. And the problem that you have is you can't tell if one of these things fails. So if you drop this from waist high while you're prepping it, I mean, they go fast down the hill. I get it. But the fact of the matter is you drop it, she's going to fracture, and you're not going to know it till it's going around the turn at 35 plus miles an hour. That's insane. When you know perfectly well, you can get one of these babies. All right. That's a steel bearing. And it'll roll plenty fast, and you're not going to have any issues with it. I think the many of the things that fail are things that the organizations would do well to improve both, both for a safety 
effect, but also just so that the buggies work better, so that they go faster, they they actually go around the course and they cross the finish line. Um, I don't think organizations are uh, fully considering the consequences of failures, like you mentioned, Tom, when they um, when they make design decisions, because uh, you know, because not finishing means you don't get a time, and the whole point is to finish and get a time, a fast time. It's sort of like that bump and run on Hill 5, right? Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, and, and that's another another great example, right? Bump, bump and run and uh, missing the push bar or diving uh, for the push bar is another one that is, you know, diving for the push bar is not obviously a safe thing to do. It's exciting. It's exciting. It's a it's a photo finish. Um, I, you know. So the question was, where are there uh, opportunities to improve the safety of the sport? You know, one thing I would look at is everything that happens outside the course. Uh, there's a huge focus, particularly on race day, on the actual buggies going around the course. I think everything that happens leading up to that is um, has substantially less uh, oversight. And that's things like where machining takes place. Um, people are working with uh, materials that require uh, special handling in order to get the material properties right. Right, Doing composites and composite layups is uh, very common in buggy these days. And it's easy to do something wrong that has an impact on the material property. I, I do think that sometimes in the interest of there is a, a certainly a spotlight on the course on race day, and it is appropriate for the rules to reflect that. But I do think that sometimes risk gets pushed outward um, into less visible areas when we add rules um, in response to incidents that have occurred on the course. That's a really good point. Um, and to that extent, there's several different shops within uh, both mechanical engineer, the School of Mechanical Engineering, and at least personally, I know from the School of Design that do not permit you to work on anything related to buggy in those shops. And those are the professionally supervised shops that could really give you some of the skills and tools you would need in order to make improvements um, to the safety of your sport, the safety of your builds, and the safety of buggy as, as a whole. Um, but because certain programs just want nothing to do with buggy, you get driven to your own shop beneath the parking garage poorly ventilated um, shop. It has all of the tools that you need. You usually acquire those secondhand um, and all of the fire safety cabinets that you need to keep those flammable liquids safe. And there are several off-campus houses um, that at least at the time I knew of, this was back in 2017, uh, where some fraternities and some, I, I was about to say sororities, but there were no sororities at the time, um, were keeping their at least in buggy, we're keeping some of their their manufacturing uh, for their for their builds, um, and I think that is a shame because the buggy community could learn so much from the school that is hosting this tradition, but it doesn't seem like the there are some aspects of the school that want anything to do with improving 
uh, the safety and culture of this sport. Yeah. Well, I 100% agree that it, it was always confusing to me when I was at Carnegie Mellon. It remains confusing to me. The The school's relationship with Buggy is, uh, uh, is very strange. And yeah, I totally agree that um, this, the school should encourage people to use uh, the machine shops and construction areas that are part of uh, the school's academic program. The mechanical engineering machine shop was a, a classic example of that, just because so many mechanics uh, are in that program in one way or another. And, uh, you know, they didn't want anything to do with buggy. There were, you were prohibited from working on buggy in those shops. Um, they didn't want anything to do with it. And I always thought that was a shame because um, it, it, both the tools were better. The oversight was better. I thought you could learn a lot. <laughs> the machinists were pretty good. Um, you could you could learn a lot from them. And that I thought I always thought it could be a symbiotic relationship that both the, the students and the department could get something out of that. And, uh, it, you know, it, it has not turned out that way over the past few decades. Cool. Um, so really kind of just open it up, but are there any other, I guess, just kind of uh, suggestions related to safety and if maybe not suggestions, just kind of reflections on maybe the state of the sport, where it's going. And, and I, I think we've covered a lot of kind of recommendations and philosophizing, but, but any kind of thoughts you may have or questions for the group about sort of where stuff's going and, and, and what the future of buggy safety looks like. I would say from my experience, um, having, if you, if you care about the safety of the drivers that are, as you, when you become safety chair, if you care about the safety of the drivers and mechanics and everybody else on the course who are now in your care, um, you sit down and you have conversations with your academic, with the, with the sweeps advisor um, and talk with them about, all right, what are your current concerns? Because you've been here, um, at least at the time it was Casey, she had been there years longer than I had. And so she sat me down she said, I'm worried about this trend that we're seeing and I'm worried about needing to require more safety equipment. Um, and she said, I, please don't give me a reason to make sure that every driver on the course needs to have a sixth um, part of their safety gear set and their personal protection equipment. Um, and I will say the stress, stress and pressure that gets put on one student um, Ann Wichner came up to me and she was like, I need you to watch this specific documentary about the Aggie bonfire incident in the 90s um, and come back to me and tell me what you've learned. Uh, and I sat down and I watched that documentary. It was properly um, dramatic. And uh, she said, make sure that we you need to make sure that we are safe enough to ensure that this sport continues to keep going and that is a lot of responsibility on on the students um but a current student will understand the culture of the current uh students running in buggy better than say administration however i would and i wouldn't change my experience for the world it does stink when you have to DQ a team that you've been rooting for because they failed drops or something benign. Um, but rules are rules. I would say if there were certain things that could be outsourced 
uh, to ensure better safety, that would be great. So a few examples of that to reduce pressure on the safety chairman would be uh, ensuring that there is a list of acceptable and prior approved uh, helmets that can be easily purchased so that we don't have every single different helmet under the color of the sun um, uh, on, on the course of race day. Having these pre-approved, like these harnesses are approved, these race day helmets are approved. Here are ways that you can improve your shell and like your shell to make sure that this is good uh, and would adequately be safe and pass capes. If you want to improve this, please talk to this person. If you want to test this, please talk to uh, this person or outsource it to this uh, company. Um, those sorts of things would be helpful. We don't expect the safety chairman to do the same job as the fire marshal does each year. And so I do think that there are opportunities to improve um, and outsource certain tasks that the safety chair does. I'm not saying outsource everything, um, but coming from the world of furniture design, we actually send out a lot of prototypes to third-party testing systems to get those run and tested to make sure they fit requirements. And that's something that doesn't go away past college. Um, had I known at the time I could have done that um, or sent something out to get tested to see if it truly could meet the requirements needed on the course, it would have been amazing. Tom, I think you had something to say. Well, I had a question to ask you, you and Fritz both, because obviously this didn't happen in my day, but you see so many people out there now with tents every weekend. Are, did you ever go in the tent and see what was going on in the tents for inspection as safety? Uh, yes, when I did spot safeties. So you did a spot safety inside the tent then as well. So actually yeah, that, you could be acting as a fire marshal. Yes, yes. that was uh, that was generally at the team's discretion. I would say I'm doing a spot safety and some teams wanted to do it outside and some teams said, well, we don't want anyone to see inside the buggy, so you have to come inside the tent to do it. See, that's okay. the point I'm getting to is because yeah. like truck weekend, there's no fire marshal there. Uh, yeah. And the, and the fire, um, uh, in recent history, I think the fire marshal has been out. On well, he didn't say he was coming out. I'm sitting on buggy ops meetings on, uh, yeah. it, Tuesday well, nights and I'm, you know, it is the, the, some, some responsibilities or some expertise has been, um, delegated to the, uh, to the fire marshal or we take advantage of their expertise and, you know, I'm not sure that has been a stress reducer for the students involved in sweepstakes. Um, there were fire safety disqualifications in 2010 and 2009, and I'm not sure that the sweepstakes chair would say the, that their life was less stressful um, because of that. I, you know, the outcome was what the outcome was and the input of the fire marshal was, uh, you know, was, um, the, the most, um, well, was used as the input and as the basis for disqualification. Um, those decisions were, were controversial, you know, one was more controversial than the other, but, 
they were somewhat controversial and uh uh and i would also point out that in in both cases um the the following year the uh chairman voted to grant relief to the affected organization to allow them to participate again the rules specify a period of time of 15 months for disqualification and in both cases um the organization uh did not um was not prohibited the following year so just sort of some notes on on how outsourcing has worked in in that particular um case and i'm i think the fire marshal is great both both fire marshals that i worked with both obviously fire marshal bob and um and and his successor were both were both great um and i'm really happy that that they were they were there and they could lend their expertise but i would say that they were you know they were less uh plugged into the day-to-day of buggy um obviously as tom pointed out it required them to come out and be present um so you know there's there's pros and cons yeah and i'm i'm hearing what you're saying to clarify my statement i think the fire marshal being present is important especially considering past incidents where there have been fires and trucks um and that made having the fire marshal there a requirement um but i think if we expected the safety chairman uh on top of everything else they need to learn in order to run their job successfully to learn how to like tell what xylitol smells like um or what to be looking for when they when they go into the tents these sort of or to the trucks when they accompany the fire marshal on these safety checks these sort of things would be more additions to their role and as the rules get edited and get longer and new changes are made the role has to change every year in order to accommodate it and so i would say if there are opportunities to say i would like you to go get your safety equipment from like accredited to this standard um you can buy those at these links and just having those readily available for a safety chairman to just put out there to the world makes their job easier and it reduces the headache for some chairmen who are looking for replacements that will meet the correct safety standard. Yeah, I think that's I think that certainly is is value add um, and just providing a list it both lowers the barrier to entry for new teams which we haven't talked about but which i think is great ensuring that new teams can safely participate in the sport especially if they uh undertake building a new buggy um but also as a way to point just as a place to point people um who don't know sort of where to start that i think that's that's great and very helpful to the sport so i i think it's a great thing to do I have a question. Do you get any sort of training on like, here's how to spot compromised webbing or this kind of knot uh, reduces the total strength of a rope by this percentage or looking at delamination uh, in terms of material science and carbon fiber structure or anything like that? It's a it's a great question. Uh, 
there is, there was, when I was the safety chair, no training. Um, there was talking to people, uh, talking to the person who had done it most recently, and um, it was possible to reach out to others. Uh, I think a number of safety chairs reach out to to people like Tom <laughs> or, or to Tom specifically, but uh, no, there's no, there was no, tra- no training. For example, one of the things that shocked me was going through the rules today was the fact that they allow rock climbing helmets. All right. And rock climbing helmets certainly allow you to avoid rocks falling on your head. But what kind of, compression do they permit during a crash? And is that to the same level as, say, a football helmet? You know, some of these new foam helmets that they've got coming out today. You know, shouldn't you really be worried about, you know, how your head gets or how the buggy gets compressed in front of you as opposed to you're going to hit this hard surface and now it transfers directly to your neck and spine. I don't understand the rationale. I get your, your climbing rigs, but I'm not understanding the helmet. I think another huge problem is just that there's nothing quite like Bucky um, anywhere else in the industry. And so any training you get is going to be from previous safety chairmen and what you've experienced in your own shop. Um, and for some teams that build every year, that's you have supposedly um, a wealth of experience. And if you've participated in a, in a build, you have some experience uh, to speak to as a safety chairman um, to that end. But for some safety chairmen who haven't built before, they go in and... There's a lot of like past experience they need to draw on um, from other past safety chairmen. If in an ideal world, um, a former safety chairman would be teaching a Stuco on how to do this, um, but for like one student, and that's like the next safety chair. <laughs> uh, but with that being said, that's just there's no time for that to happen because some safety chairmen are are seniors and are graduating the same moment a new safety is coming in. Um, because of that, I actually created a, uh, a former safety chairman like Discord that's very exclusive. Um, so new safety chairman can join and ask like, how would this happen? Or what do you recommend to some of us, some of us old timers and say like, well, have you tried X, Y, Z? Um, and we'll go over what we learned and trade secrets. <laughs> well, I think that's awesome. You want to join Tom? <laughs> Absolutely. Just give me a link. Tell me how to do it. Will do. <laughs> I'm not technically savvy, although I, this device that you gave me today works fantastic, Rachel. <laughs> I have a question though. So if you haven't been on the course recently, I'm confused by the double hay bales on the inside of the course, right? And the reason for that is because as you're going around the turn, that course is sloped towards the inner portion of the turn, right? You've taken away 12 to 15 inches of driver 
banking that she can use to go around that turn and make that course more successfully at higher speeds. So I'm not understanding why you want to put her at the crest or over the side of the hill towards the outer hay bales. And we've seen very few wrecks head on on that inner side of the hay bales. And I'm just very interested in hearing what the rationale is for doing that because I think it's it's defeating driver safety. Yeah, I can't speak to that specifically, but I think you bring up a, a great point. Well, two, two important points there. One is that it is possible in the name and interest of improving safety to make something less safe. And that is something we should we should certainly all be wary of and, and conscious of um, as we uh, as we attempt to make this the sport safer. And the second is um, the role of of um, judgment and who makes decisions like which areas get um, get hay bales and which get double bales. Um, I don't think the rule spe- the rule book specifies where those go, and so I think it's up to the discretion of of the sweepstakes committee in any given year. And I'll say, I don't, I don't know. I don't know which areas are, uh, are double bailed today or what the rationale for that is. From that light post entering the turn all the way around past the first tree are all double bailed now. Hmm. Interesting. Which is, like I said, causes you to automatically move out. And now if somebody's trying to pass, just creates a lot of conflict. Something, hopefully, uh, the listeners, if, if someone more contemporary uh, finds out, let us know in the Discord. Um, I don't know if you're on the CMU Buggy Discord, Tom, but cmubuggy.org slash chat. Uh, I'll write that down. Thank you, Will. Tom, you asked about the carbon fiber repair earlier. Was there anything further you wanted to say on that? Yes, because I've I've found that, for example... I've actually been out at Boeing because I supplied them with the E36 material that they use for making their uh, frameworks for the carbon fiber because it's got low expansion characteristics. And they were very reticent to, you know, they use pre-preg everything and they weren't really keen on doing repairs, right? They'd rather do new. And maybe it's because they're flying at plus 600 mile an hour and maybe a little less problems. No, it's a great, it's a great point about just composites in general and, and maybe take a step back as the, the materials used in building buggies has changed significantly throughout the course of, of buggy as a sport. But even in recent history, the shift to, I think entirely, uh, composite buggies, um, and primarily carbon fiber. Uh, there are a few that are, are, uh, fiberglass or, um, or even Kevlar, um, but primarily carbon fiber, uh, with some sort of core material, uh, often Nomex core, but some, you know, it, it's students, they'll use anything, right? There's foam core, there's aluminum core, there's, uh, I'm, you know, you yeah, see aluminum and carbon don't mesh. Exactly. And so there's a huge sort of materials question there about um, 
you know, what surface work was done to ensure a good bond between both in, in manufacturing the, uh, the composite structure, but then also, as you pointed out, repairing composite structures is a whole nother thing. And industrial applications typically um, build new replacements rather than um, rather than repair. Uh, partially, that's diff- that's that's due to um, the difficulty in repairing. And there's also, you know, how do you get a, ensure you have a good bond on uh, from the new layer onto the old layer? That um, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. I have seen buggy composite buggies repaired with uh, essentially with steel plates. Um, that is one way to go about it. Uh, but even there, you have to ensure that what is the steel being being bolted to, and is that you, all you're doing is changing the load path? Can that take the load? Um, it's a uh, these are are complex structures. Um, three-dimensional that at, at the end of the day are being built by college students. <laughs> and so um, there is, is necessarily going to be some uh, variability in the build quality, you know, in, in industrial, there's a huge quality assurance process. You mentioned going out to, to Boeing. I'm sure there's a, there's a huge QA process there that touches every element of design, engineering, manufacturing, supply chain, how the materials are manufactured, stored, handled, temperature um, variations, and, and yep, temperature and humidity. Uh, none of that is is present in uh, uh, in in a or as far as I know, present in a college setting. Nor do I think it's it's sort of reasonable to expect that it will be. Um, probably want to start getting towards just final thoughts and statements or whatever. So it doesn't get cut off. Well, I'm good. I found this to be extremely enjoyable. Just speaking to you all. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah. Same. And thanks Tom for participating. It's always a, always a pleasure. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you all so much for coming on and bringing your expertise and thoughtful insights to this topic. That's both important and can be difficult. I'm still amazed by your senior project. That was phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to, re- to read that report. Sweet. Well, I think that was a really, really, really cool discussion. Hope y'all enjoyed that. Um, hope y'all enjoyed all this. I think this is the last episode of this season of Shoot the Shit. Uh, as always, hop on over to our Discord, cmubuggy.org slash chat, and uh, let us know what you think about this episode, about the season, about future seasons, about your life, uh, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Um, it's been an absolute blast hosting this for y'all, uh, but we like to do this as a ramp up to race day, and race day is pretty much here. Um, you can hear my voice again, I guess not an officially shoot the shit sanctioned activity, um, but I will be hosting the 2023 race day preview show next Wednesday, April 12th, 
7 p.m. Eastern on WRCT 88.3. Streaming information will be available as well at uh, cmubuggy.org. Uh, but that is always a little bit of a chaotic blast. Uh, so definitely tune into that. And then we'll be doing the races as well next weekend. Again, WRCT 88.3, CMU TV, cmubuggy.org has all of the stuff that you need to tune into that. Get your fix of sweepstakes action. So everybody get excited. Uh, thank you to our guests this week and Rachel Schmidt, doubly so for uh, joining us, but also for producing this, for producing everything with Shoot the Shit. Really makes it possible, Buggy Alumni Association as well, and you, the listeners. Uh, so thank you very much, and uh, see you hopefully at Carnival. This is Will Liner for Shoot the Shit.